Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine's monthly podcast, bringing you news highlights and topical debate. Hello, and welcome to the August edition of the Into Security podcast. I'm your host, Eleanor Dalloway, and I'm joined by Benjamin David and James Coker. Hey, guys. Hey, Eleanor. Hey, Eleanor. Yes, thank you. Always. So the last time we recorded this podcast, our website remained offline as we continue to endure one hell of a DDoS attack. And that is said not with admiration for the attack, but instead with disdain and heartbreak. The DDoS attack took us offline for 24 days in total, but we were actually under attack for longer than that, a total of 37 days. Now, Brian Honan told me at the time not to use the word sophisticated, and I'm really grateful to him for that advice because I'd have likely made that schoolgirl error. But while we're not saying sophisticated, we will, without a doubt, say that it was sustained. A very top line explanation, and we certainly hope to be able to dive a lot deeper with you in due course, is that our website, which had industry respected and endorsed DDoS protection, stood up against the attack. This, however, sent our attackers looking for an alternative route in, and they landed on our third-party content management system hosting provider. The CMS sadly did not hold up. So whilst offline, we moved our website over to a more robust hosting provider. It wasn't a quick process, as multiple people worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make the transition as sturdy as possible. And then on Wednesday, the 4th of August, it felt like Christmas Day. And for those of you in the UK, you'll know that the weather barely contradicted that feeling. We're having a terrible August. Um, But we went live again and it felt so good to be publishing content again. And oh my gosh, there has been a lot of it. It wasn't like we just sat there twiddling our thumbs when we were offline. We were busy creating stacks of content ready for when we relaunched. But anyway, what matters is that we're back now. And on behalf of the entire InfoSecurity Magazine team, we want to say a huge and heartfelt thanks to all of our readers, our supporters, our friends, our industry for the overwhelming support and solidarity during that time. We will not forget it. And speaking of what we did whilst our site was down, we put to bed the Q3 issue of InfoSecurity Magazine. You can now download the digital issue if you're not a print subscriber on our website, www.infosecurity-magazine.com slash digital hyphen issues. The issue contains features on GPT-3, Biden's six-month cybersecurity review, ransomware, global threat trends, CDM providers, and much more. But that's quite enough for me. We've given this episode a zero trust theme. So after the news roundup, Ben is going to talk you through the top five zero trust policies. And then later, we're going to chat with zero trust industry experts. So stay tuned if you're interested in all things zero trust. But now for the news, the top stories at the moment. And we're going to start, James, with cryptocurrency. So take it away. That's right. Thanks, Elena. So this is the ongoing story about the largest ever cryptocurrency heist that took place earlier this month. Um, so I found it a very intriguing tale, really. And there's probably still going to be some updates on this. So it all began when Poly Network, which is a company that Im- implements interoperability between multiple blockchains, revealed that a hacker had exploited a vulnerability in its system that enabled them to steal a whopping $610 million worth of cryptocurrency. 
which is the most corded theft in a single hack in history. So Poly Network then wrote an open letter to the hacker on its Twitter page, which urged them to return the funds and warned that it's very unwise for you to do any further transactions. Um, as it says, law enforcement will be able to track such activity. So the story developed further when the hacker came out of the shadows, so to speak, to post a three-page Q&A which provided more details about how they carried out the heist. And importantly, they claimed that they did it out of ethical motives and that it was always the plan to return the funds and also that they were not very interested in money. The hacker also said, I know it hurts when people are attacked, but shouldn't they learn something from those hacks? So Poly Network subsequently revealed that $260 million worth of the money was indeed returned via three types of cryptocurrencies, although more than half remained unaccounted for. But then a few days later, Poly Network confirmed that all but $33 million worth of the digital coins have now been returned. However, in another twist, $268 million worth, um, dollars worth is locked into an account that requires passwords from both Poly Network and the hacker to gain access. So in theory, the hacker could make this money inaccessible if they choose to. Um, and then the hackers posted a new message claiming that Poly Network offered them $500,000 bounty to send all the money back, um, but they turned it down. So, yeah, it's quite a quite an intriguing story, and, and I think there's going to be more and more to run on it. So whether the hacker was genuinely motivated by ethical concerns, or it was a case of they got cold feet and kind of feared being tracked down by law enforcement is, is up for debate, I'd say. So experts in the field have kind of noted how difficult it would be withdrawing such a large sum of cryptocurrency without being caught um, so this could be the real reason why the funds have been returned but either way it's it's been quite an interesting case to follow and it will serve as i guess as a warning to companies that are involved in managing cryptocurrencies about the importance of keeping their systems as secure as possible amid the the huge surge in cryptocurrency value that we've we've seen recently I think it's so interesting, you know, like the public nature of this story and how, you know, the insight we've had into those communications and, you know, the, the open letters back and forth. It's, yeah, absolutely fascinating. I find cryptocurrency um, a bit of a mind boggle, to be honest. I think that probably says <laughs> quite a lot for my risk averse personality. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this plays out. Um, actually, James. And like you say, it's really interesting to see what those the genuine motivations are behind all of this. Over now to the United States with Benjamin. Yes. Yeah, so uh, for my first story, I'd like to discuss yet another memo issued by the Biden administration on cybersecurity as it looks to radically improve the security of federal agencies and critical infrastructure in the US. So this new order has given the heads of executive departments and agencies 60 calendar days to identify all the critical software in their systems and to secure it. Now, according to the memo penned by the Office of Management and Budget's acting director, Shalanda Young, much of the software that the federal government relies on to perform its critical functions is, quote, commercially developed through an often opaque process that may lack sufficient controls to prevent the creation and exploitation of significant application security vulnerabilities. Young writes that this situation has resulted in a pressing need to implement more rigorous and predictable mechanisms for ensuring that products function securely in the manner intended. 
Also in the memo, Young references guidance released by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or the NIST, on what constitutes critical software. So this latest memo follows, of course, several released by the White House in recent months that are designed to enhance the security of government agencies. This includes an executive order in May looking to improve supply chain security, in which one of the provisions is a requirement for all federal government software suppliers to meet strict rules on cybersecurity or risk being blacklisted. So, of course, this is another example of the Biden administration's commitment to cybersecurity, something we analyze in a great deal of detail in an article during the Q3 issue of our print magazine, which was published, of course, earlier this month. Yeah, and I think probably the review of Biden's cybersecurity agenda is perhaps one of the only things that he is um, not feeling a huge amount of heat and criticism over at the moment. Um, given all of the news headlines this week. But I will leave that to the non-cybersecurity specific news outlets to cover. Next up, the story that really blew up our website yesterday. And every now and again, this happens. We publish a story and it receives a huge boost of traffic instantly. So US hospitals being shut down due to ransomware. James, back to you, please. Yeah, that's right. And it, it does really seem that a day can't really go by without there being a big ransomware story at the moment sometimes. And yes, uh, this story, as you say, it really blew up on our website yesterday. So this came was a new study which, which offered some really alarming statistics about the targeting of hospitals with ransomware. So the study came from Philips and Cyber MDX, which was entitled The Perspectives in Healthcare Security Report. And this was based on interviews with 130 IT and cybersecurity hospital executives and biomedical engineers and technicians. And it's found that almost half, so 48% of US hospitals have disconnected their networks in the past six months due to ransomware, which was a uh, pretty alarming really. So the respondents who admitted to shutting down their networks as a result of ransomware were a mixture of those who did so proactively to avoid a damaging breach and also those who were forced to because of a severe malware infection. Medium-sized hospitals were appeared to have suffered the most from the impact of such attacks. Of the respondents that experienced a shutdown due to external factors, large facilities suffered an average of 6.2 hours downtime at the cost of $21,500 per hour. And in comparison, mid-sized hospitals average nearly 10 hours at a whopping $45,700 per hour. So according to those who were surveyed, skills gaps and low levels of investment in cybersecurity were the main factors in such action needed to be taken. Another concerning finding from the report was that many US hospitals are still exposed to severe vulnerabilities. For example, 52% of respondents admitted they're not protected against the Blue Keep bug, while 64% said this was not the case for WannaCry, which obviously was a big case a few years ago, and 75% for NotPetya. So some really quite concerning statistics there, and, and it really highlights the, the ransomware threat faced by hospitals, which is exacerbated since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So having to disconnect 
systems on such a regular basis can obviously have a hugely devastating impact with potential operations and medical appointments having to be postponed as a result. And there was, of course, the case last year in which a ransomware attack on a hospital was actually linked to a, to a death. Um, so this was uh, when a, a lady who was in need of urgent medical treatment had to have her treatment delayed by an hour because of a ransomware attack on a hospital in Dusseldorf in Germany and she subsequently died sadly. So yeah, that that case really hit home how cyber attacks can can be a matter of life and death, I suppose. Yeah, I think that this story took me and you did mention it um, and it probably took all of our readers and listeners straight back to, to WannaCry. And I think, you know, those incidents or events that you always remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when yeah. you find out about them. Like Princess Diana's death, for example, or 9-11, we all remember exactly what we were doing when we, we heard that news. In, yeah. in the context of cybersecurity, that's WannaCry for me. It's one of those examples. I remember so clearly walking through some woodlands with my son, who was probably about one or two at the time, when my phone just suddenly completely blew up with the news, um, metaphorically, of course. Um, and I, yeah, I think for me, that's the headline that I'll never forget breaking. Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, on to our last news item for today's podcast, which is around smishing. So Benjamin, back to you. Thank you. Yeah, the, the final story I want to cover is the growth of parcel delivery or smishing scams. So this comes from new data provided to UK Finance from Proofpoint, which operates the NCSC's 7726 text messaging system, or 7726. This showed that 67.4% of all texts in the UK reported as scammed to the system in the 30 days mid-July were masquerading as delivery companies. So this far exceeded the next highest type of scam text, which were those pretending to be financial institutions and banks at 22.6% of all reported scam texts. So I thought this data is really interesting as it shows how scammers are continuing to leverage the huge rise in online shopping that we've seen since the start of COVID-19, which has obviously resulted in a lot more deliveries being made. Now linked to this data, we also recently covered an investigation made by the consumer group Witch which detailed a new smishing scam that impersonates the well-known international parcel delivery firm DPD. This sends a text to the recipients claiming that an attempted parcel delivery was made, but no one was in to receive it. A link is given, which, if clicked, takes the user to a very convincing DPD copycat website. Now, this asks for personal details and a small payment to be made to rearrange the delivery. Now, which showed just how sophisticated this scam was, with the website looking very similar to the official DPD site, which would be enough to trick a lot of people. Now, following the new findings on the extent of delivery smishing scams, experts from UK Finance and the NCSC have urged people to send any suspicious-looking text messages to the 7726 service the number 7726 is used as it spells spam on a keyboard. So this is definitely an area scammers are looking to exploit and consumers need to stay on the alert and carefully look at any messages they receive regarding parcel deliveries. 
I think given the amount of shopping that we've all done online since lockdown, and hopefully it's not just me, the amount of legitimate texts about deliveries that we get and expect, it's no wonder that this is such a successful campaign because it's, yeah, it's very easy to just be expecting it and click through. Thank you very much, um, Ben. And thank you, James, for the news. It's so good to be able to report properly on all of these news stories again now that we're back online. Next up, like I said at the beginning, we're going to bring you something a little bit different. And we do have a Zero Trust theme today. We've been running a load of top five and top 10 articles on Info Security Magazine website of late. And today we're going to bring one of those to you on the podcast in audio form. Benjamin, you have a top five Zero Trust policies to share with us. So I think with the assistance of James, you're going to do that now. Exactly, yes. So thank you, Eleanor. Yeah, so of course, Zero Trust is a key framework in which security teams can reconcile the very complicated threat landscape and mobile workforce to protect remote and in-office users. Now, by adopting a Zero Trust approach, security departments assume that all content, regardless of whether it originates from a trusted source, is untrustworthy. Now, creating a zero trust framework requires implementing controls and technologies across the IT estate. So that includes networks, endpoints, etc. Now, an exciting new approach calls for introducing Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE, architecture into an organization. Others focus on segmenting key elements such as applications and the corporate network. Now, what all these key zero trust policies aim to do is enable remote working. Now, with remote working becoming more ubiquitous, organizations need to think of very new terroristic approaches to bolster their security controls. Here, organizations should make sure current employees and contractors recognize and abide by information security duties. After all, most primed security teams recognize the importance of defining roles and access controls or personnel security as effective zero trust policies. Of course, people might ask why? Well, by operationalizing roles and pairing them to a policy, organizations provide themselves with more safeguards and zero trust. So here are five personnel security policies to adopt a zero trust framework for your organization. Yeah, and the the first one of these is least privilege, which is an approach. It's all about restricting employee access to only the data they need to do their job and, and nothing more. So digital access is one such area in which a security team places due consideration on access to programs, networks and accounts. Moreover, due care is placed on physical access, including computers, peripherals, etc., uh, and all users have equal threat status if, if all of their access is the same. Absolutely, yes. So number two, of course, is to have a dual operator policy. So for many duties, it is possible to have responsibilities split between two people. Now, introducing a policy that incentivizes dual operating will result in employees authorizing each other's work. Each person can then detect incorrect or unauthorized procedures. 
Yeah, and the third one's quite linked to that, um, which is divide duties. So no user should have enough privileges to misuse the system on their own. For example, the person producing a paycheck for a colleague should not also be the one who pays them, in which case the employee can breach security policy and obscure any financial trials that would reveal the breach. Absolutely. Number four, limit depending on key employees. So certain employees will be more vital from an operational point of view. This can be risky. To help mitigate this security risk, there should be concrete strategies in place for when such employees are absent. And the fifth one is make vacations compulsory, which probably sounds quite good to a lot of employees. Um, so forcing employees to take at least one week of consecutive vacation, an organisation can audit an employee's work and possibly discover fraudulent behaviour or embezzlement. And so this is particularly important when hybrid working has become the norm and supervision is more complicated. So that's our top five. I particularly like the fifth one. I think enforced holiday sounds incredible. And actually, more and more companies are doing it. I emailed Katie Mazuris um, a few weeks ago and got an automated response saying they were shutting down Luta Security for two weeks um, for enforced vacations. So love it. Absolutely love it. In the latest issue of InfoSecurity, the Q3 edition, we ran a points counterpoint on zero trust with two industry experts arguing both for and against. So we've invited those authors to join us on the podcast today to bring those thoughts into audio life. First up, we've got Callum Roxon, who is the Global Head of Threat Intelligence at F-Secure. So thanks for joining us today, Callum. Thanks for having me. So firstly, it sounds like a really basic question, but in sort of one, maximum two sentences, how would you actually describe zero trust and what it means? That's a good question. Uh, I think it means a lot of different things for different people. Um, for me, I would say zero trust is the uh, new approach to kind of secure network architecture, moving away from the traditional perimeter security model um, based around three core principles of verify explicitly, uh, use least privilege and always assume breach. Um, and generally it revolves around a never trust and always verify methodology. So you argued the case against zero trust in the point counterpoint column that you wrote for the last issue. Can you give us a rundown of the sort of the key points of that argument that you made against zero trust technology? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I'd say uh, the principles of zero trust are definitely good, but I think the problems come when it comes to implementation. Implementing zero trust in its kind of full description uh, is something that's incredibly difficult for organizations. There's a lot of complexity and cost involved. And I think for organizations, many of whom are struggling to do the cybersecurity basics, such as patch management, securing the external assets, and kind of basic detection and response capability, these kind of projects um, sort of aimed towards a full zero trust implementation end up being kind of large sinks of both time and effort in an organization that ultimately don't reach their kind of true goals and objectives. As many kind of security leaders know and sort of the ones we engage with on a regular basis in industry uh, talk to us about, actually having engagement and buy-in from your organization in relation to security is half the battle. It's really important for making progress and improving many things in an organization. And zero trust projects have a real danger of being white elephants where you start them, you invest large amounts of time and money, not only in your security function, but in other teams in the organization. And you actually never really ultimately 
receive the kind of uh, benefits from those because it never gets completed and sort of drowns in complexity. The NCSC have a 10-step um, process for how they suggest approaching zero trust, which does break this down a bit. But even the first step, which is know your architecture, including users, devices, and services, is something that's incredibly complex and difficult for most organizations to realistically fully achieve. Therefore, I think zero trust, whilst a nice goal, um, is something that is very difficult for most organizations to actually achieve and is probably something that only a few should actually try to achieve in the end. So hypothetically, if we were to remove the cost elements and, and hurdle or blocker, um, would you be more pro zero trust? I think anyone in security, if you told them you could remove the cost of implementing something, would be definitely more <laughs> for it. I think it's not just the, as I kind of detailed in the article, it's not just the upfront cost of implementing it, it's the ongoing cost and maintenance related to it. I do think zero trust is a very good concept, but it's similar to Microsoft's previous um, Red Forest architecture, which they actually uh, retired because it was too complex. I think zero trust struggles from a lot of the same uh, same problems. I do think there'll be things in the future that will evolve out of it, where it'll potentially be broken down into more manageable bite-sized chunks or kind of achievable goals. Um, and anyone who's actually looking at zero trust, I would recommend they kind of generally take that approach. Um, so I do think it can be beneficial, but in full implementation, I would say for most organizations, they'd be better spending their time and effort elsewhere. So in your column, you made a specific point about security becoming a blocker thanks to zero trust, or certainly that there's a danger that that could happen. So my first question would be, how how could that happen? And my second question would be, what can businesses or organizations do to prevent that from happening? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of how it becomes a blocker, when you implement zero trust, you have to move from a very overly permissive internal model where any kind of user can access anything near enough within sort of some limitations to one where for every resource they access, so that be kind of email, a file share, an application, that they that access needs to be kind of approved or verified. Uh, obviously, that has a benefit from a security point of view, but it adds a lot of overhead in terms of managing that, those permissions and that kind of privilege effectively. In order for how organizations to avoid that, that's definitely something that's really difficult. Um, the recommendations um, sort of given in relation to zero trust very much focus around kind of policy management and kind of trying to implement that at scale. However, that does, it's not simple. It's not an easy thing to avoid. There is a lot of complexity to it. I think one of the kind of core recommendations I would have for organizations who are looking to do this is to look at their permissions model, look at their groups and sort of how those are all applied and probably tidy those up and have those in a good place before kind of starting down this path. A lot of organizations have a lot of technical debt from kind of years of things being kind of added on top of each other. Um, and there's things um, particularly relating around Active Directory where those have never been kind of rebuilt from scratch, where that kind of builds up over time and will add additional overhead to uh, things like this when implementing Zero Trust. Callum, thanks so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your thoughts with us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. 
So here to fight the opposing corner for Zero Trust, and I mean for literally, um, I'm joined by Paul Holland, Principal Research Analyst at ISF, and he's stepping in today for his colleague, Jordan Kelly. Now, Jordan penned the column for our latest issue, but he and Paul work together on the Zero Trust project. So he's very well positioned to talk on the subject. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining us today on the pod. That's fine. It's good to be here. So a question that I asked the Against Zero Trust team yesterday was to just sort of briefly describe what exactly Zero Trust means. Um, I, I believe there's sort of different people have different definitions. So what does it mean to you? Um, yeah, so, so like you said, we've done a research project. So part of our research, we kind of came up with the definition as we saw it. So we see it as a security strategy. It's designed to kind of minimise that lateral movement, you know, where people, once they they reach somewhere they try and use and move across the network but the zero trust strategy is there and works through the principle of verify but never trust so it's there to, to make sure that it can verify every connection but it's never going to trust them implicitly. Awesome so you obviously argue the case for zero trust can you give us a rundown of the main arguments of why you believe that zero trust is is a positive thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. We certainly see it as a very positive thing. It is, uh, like we said, it's a strategy. So it's lots of things you need to bring together. So it is actually a very, very complex um, solution. It is certainly a journey, but it's the way of creating different they're, they're different kind of little micro perimeters or protect surfaces they sometimes get called so you're you're what you're doing is you're taking security and you're looking at the kind of the, the smallest elements and packaging security around each of those elements rather than the big standard kind of castle and moat style perimeter that security has been working on and kind of hiding behind for many many years uh, and obviously with the advent of cloud um, it started to break that and with certainly all this remote working because of COVID-19, it's pushed that even further. More and more people are moving to the cloud. There's people not in the standard offices you'd expect. So Zero Trust is a good way of breaking down those different elements of the data, the assets, the applications, the services and the people. And it doesn't matter particularly where they are, where they start from, where they're coming from. So it, it allows you to create security for the specific time that somebody's accessing something where they're accessing it from how they're accessing it whether it's their laptop an ipad or just a a generic you know pc in a workplace that might not be their normal one and they look at where that connection's coming from where it's going to should they have access to that specific piece of say data or that specific application rather than saying have they got access to the whole network so it it brings all that kind of complicated environment into into small bite-sized chunks that you can start with and that's another advantage i think with zero trust is that you don't have to do it to the whole of your environment your it environment straight away you can build it up you can start with small pieces that are nice and easy to achieve get the idea of zero trust into the organization that you're working for so that they can see that it works and then you can just build and build and build so you can build up from there and and effectively take it to your whole environment if you want to or just take it to the core elements that you're most worried about so for me that's where zero trust is a big advantage and the arguments that were made against zero trust were mainly based around its complexity and also it's the cost of the financial cost of implementation so what would you say to those points I can't really disagree with those at all. 
I even mentioned that it, it's complex, but you, you can reduce that complexity by doing it in a piecemeal way. Like I said, you start small in environment and you build it up and you learn your lessons. And as you're doing that, you get better at doing it. You get faster at doing it. But ultimately, the, the end goal with your zero trust strategy makes everything simpler. It will save you money in the long run. And look at the kind of cost of a breach. So it's going to be cheaper than recovering from, you know, a ransomware attack, for example. Um, you know, but the the amount of time and effort you put in, you're going to save yourself money in the long run. And and also because of that piecemeal environment, it, it makes life actually easier for the end user in the end. So it actually, as much as people think zero trust creates friction, yes, it probably does to start with. But in the long term, a lot of that friction is reduced. So actually, you get better business processes. They can run faster and smoother. And as you bring in new applications and new ideas and new ways of working, it's also easier to bolt them into the zero trust environment. So actually, in the long term, there's there's many financial benefits you can gain out of it as well. Yeah, that totally makes sense, actually. Just one last point I wanted to sort of uh, challenge you on. The other argument that the other team sort of put forward is that zero trust can sort of cause, there's a danger that security can become a blocker um, with zero trust strategies. Would you agree with that? Is there any truth in that? Again, it's it's another one of those that it, it depends how well it's managed because like I said zero trust is complicated. It is a very long term strategy. So if it's if it's not done in the right way, it could potentially become a blocker. But uh, like I was just saying in, in the last piece, uh, the long term benefits out of it, it will actually reduce that friction. So it, it helps be, so to mean security isn't so much of a blocker. It won't stop people doing their day to day jobs. It won't stop innovation because it's once you've got everything in place for zero trust, just bolting in a new application, you just create a new protect surface around it. You know how to do that because you've done it hundreds of thousands of times before. So it, it's really quick to embed something new. You, you know, you don't have to embed it into the whole architecture. You can just bolt it on at the side with your protect surface. So it, it does make things simpler so actually it it will make the security team an enabler in the future but whilst you're going through that initial journey it's not going to it's not going to happen straight away I suppose that's the best way of putting it. Paul thank you so much you've been you've been a great stand-in for Jordan so really appreciate your time today. That's okay no problem I've really enjoyed the talk. So now you've heard both sides of the argument, both the point and the counterpoint of Zero Trust. So thank you to our two experts for coming on and talking about that. We'd love to hear you, our audience's thoughts on the topic. So please do get in touch all the usual ways if you're interested in sharing your opinion. Thanks, Erna. We're really interested to hear what our listeners think about this new themed episode concept. We love bringing it to you, but obviously, if it doesn't quite work for you, we'll, we'll keep adapting the format until we find something that does. So don't be shy. Get in touch and, and tell us what you think. Yeah, absolutely. We always welcome your feedback. So you can find us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, via email. Uh, Just let us know what you think. So that's it from us and this August episode of Into Security podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. I've been Eleanor. I've been James. And I've been Benjamin. Thanks for listening to Into Security. For in-depth interviews with the industry's finest minds, check out our sister podcast, Into Security Chats. Join us again next month. Until then, stay safe and keep up to date with everything you need to know about information security via the infosecurity-magazine.com website.